Welcome to The Sale Ring, a podcast dedicated to real estate brokers, agents, and America's top auctioneers that keep the markets moving. Join your hosts, Sean and Trina, as they talk with most successful realtors, marketing and technology experts, investors, and influencers. This show is devoted to all industry professionals looking to up their game and stay up to date. Welcome to The Sale Ring. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. It, is, it does <laughs> sound time. like that. Welcome to the celery. <laughs> Let's fight. Yes. Oh, that's crazy. I it wish, does. It I does sound like that. We, we gotta. Would, we gotta change that up. I wish one time we would have on video every time that bell rings that Sean raises his hand and, and dings an invisible bell in yeah. here. Ding ding. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Uh, it reminds me of being at Long John Silver's, you know. <laughs> hey, if we okay. did well, ring the bell. That's amazing. So I'm glad we're starting out with some humor. So we've got, uh, we have um, the infamous Shane Terrell with us. Yes, yes. Um, and I think I'm going to turn this on. I know he's driving. Um, we got him patched in remotely here. Shane, can you uh, can you hear us? Yes, sir. Hey. Awesome. So we've got uh, brother Shane Terrell in the uh, in the studio via cell phone, via technology, and uh, we've got an interesting show. I'll, I'll tell you how this one came about, <clears throat> as most of them do. It's like, well, what's a good show topic? What are we going to talk about? We just came back from a real estate convention, and just hard-charging real estate auction, you know, Lots and lots, 700 people, mm -hmm. you know, and, and one of the topics that came up in the discussion was somebody that was battling um, in a transaction where they had a, somebody had a first right of refusal on a property. And then that turned into, I was talking with Shane about it, about a 30 or 45 minute conversation. And it's like, you know, this would be a great podcast show topic because they're, they've, they've, been in existence for as long as I can remember in real estate, chain two, and uh, we both have background in it. He's got some in-depth knowledge because he's been dealing with that in an area that's a strong farm market, mm -hmm. um, farm economy out there, and, and that's a strategy that gets used a lot of times when there's loyalties built up, and so anyways, that's why we asked Shane to come on the show and, and talk to us about that. I'm sure... If you remember previous podcasts with Shane uh, and Sean, uh, Trina is rolling her eyes right mm -hmm. now. This will no, undoubtedly get off into the weeds at some point, but we uh, let's be content rich <laughs> yeah. if we can, man. Hey, thank you. Thank you for the invite, big brother. Trina, it's always good to visit with you. You too. You too. Where are you at? Where, where are you at right now? I can hear you're driving. Um, in East Central Florida today. Um, but I like your topic. I like the right of right of first refusal or roughers, as we call them. It's um, it's interesting. We run across them, and it's it's probably good that we can visit about it. I think we can. Maybe we won't come up with all the solutions, but I'll bet that we can provoke some thought where people will think before a seller gives a right of first refusal. And I think it's helpful to investors that maybe you want to have some. Yeah. So let's set it up as we get into this topic. Let's let's just set the stage for everybody that'll download the podcast and listen to it. It's more prevalent in some markets than it is in others. So if you sell residential housing in an urban market, 
you're probably not going to run across rights of first refusal or that issue in many of your transactions. They, they would be more rare in those cases. But if you're in the land brokerage business, you know, farmland, ranch land, recreational land, um, those can be in certain areas of the country more prevalent. And it's something as a broker, as a seasoned broker, you're going to have to learn to to navigate. So here's the first question I got for you, Shane. A right of first refusal, okay, is that a good thing or a bad thing on the macro, you know? I think it's both. I think it depends on which side of the fence you're on. What do you mean? Tell, think, tell me what that means. I think, okay, so like a lot of terminology and negotiations, a lot of things that are good for one party is bad for the other. So if you're the landowner, I think right of first refusal is a bad idea, but I think if you're the holder of that right of first refusal as a tenant or a previous owner, I think it's a great idea. Well, it makes sense because we have we've seen the we've seen the strength and the weakness in that by visiting with both investors. Mm-hmm. People that, you know, they don't own the land, they they buy land. They they purchase land for in the acquisition, either long-term holds or, or they're chopping it up and reselling it. And we've seen it from the seller's uh, standpoint. And I think it's fair to say, Shane, that more often you get introduced to that from the sellers because in the brokerage business, we're primarily dealing with sellers. We're chasing listings. And that's where it can, in their case, rear its ugly head is you think you have a lock, you've got a great farm that you're going to go to sell and said, oh, by the way, you know, I forgot about this. Um, you know, so-and-so has a right of first refusal on it. Well, here's something I, I was going to say. It's it's becoming more prevalent. We're seeing more of them now than we did 10, 15 years ago. But I don't, the more I think about that, that's not accurate. A true statement would be 10 or 15 years ago, a lot of these things were put in place and those properties are coming to the market now and people are wanting us to sell their property and they either know about the right of refusal and they let us know or they don't know. And it comes back in the title work as a as a cloud and a, and a requirement in the policy to where, hey, you've got to address this right of first refusal, which means you've got to go back to whoever the holder of that is and give them the opportunity to purchase this land at the same price and terms as your current buyer. So I, I don't know that it's, it's something new. It's just we're seeing more and more of them in our transactions. And honestly, we wish we didn't because it, it adversely affects value and it makes these things harder to close and harder to sell. So let's talk about that historically. Why, what's your gut feeling why those were put? And I know that you know, this may not answer it for every right of first refusal that was ever in place, but predominantly – why do you think that that started? Why would, um, if, you know, somebody out here owns a farm, let's say an agricultural farm, why would they even consider giving somebody else a right of first refusal? How do you think that conversation was initially? I think from the landowner's side, I don't think they give it a lot of thought. And I don't think they understand the effects of how it hurts marketability. And obviously, they don't understand the effects of how it clouds a chain of title. And it is such an easy sale. So, for example, you're a tenant on a farm. You're renting these people's farm from them. They trust you, obviously, or they wouldn't rent the farm to you. 
and you say, hey, you know what I'd like in my lease? If you ever decide to sell this, I really would like a shot at buying it. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I'm going to put a I want to put a first rider refusal on my lease. And if, if if something comes up, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow. But if you decide to sell, I want to I want you to call me first because I just love your farm. And they're like, well, you know what? That's great. Uh, and they put it in the lease. If it ends up in a deed reservation, it's perpetual. It's almost there forever unless there's a time limit on it. But what we've seen happen is these leases, people will call us and say, I want to sell my farm and there's an existing lease. And then we get a copy of the lease and there's a right of refusal. Um, it's, it's pretty tough to maximize value when you go to your buyer, if you're going to be transparent and say, we want to sell this farm, but the buyer needs to know that any offer they make is immediately going to get shopped to the holder of this right of first refusal. So you're basically establishing somebody else's purchase price if they want to buy it. And that makes buyers reluctant to make an offer. Yeah, you could see how, um, especially in the auction world, that that would kind of create some conflicts of interest as well on current bidders and things like that. I think, you know, as we get into, because that's one of the things that I wanted to ask about is, at auction, it's it's even more detrimental because people need to make an on the spot decision. Yeah, you know, you're you're trying to force them to to a decision at a certain. It culminates at that point in time, and um, at least in a traditionally negotiated sale, you have a little bit of flexibility to go back and right. and say, well, this is going on, and you know, this is what we have to do first. But so so back in Upshade, you, you think probably that starts. And I agree with this is it's just from personal relationships. You know, people are, they want to be good neighbors. And, you know, I always think about our mom, you know, she uh, and and the farms that we had out there in Western Oklahoma that she had. Um, and the, the guy that was the tenant on those, she genuinely liked him and, and his family. And I could see if he had approached her about that, I could see her, you know, um, agreeing to that just to, just to be a good landlord, you know, say, yeah, I feel like you're taking care of me and I trust you. And yes, I'd be willing to do that. So I agree. I think it is an easy sale. Something else that amazes me, if, if you're, you know, you take a lot of our clients, we've, we've always been told that honest people are more trusting of others, right? So if, if somebody defaults to, I don't know you, we just met, but I can trust you. That's usually an indication that you can trust them. So when you use our mom as an example, she adored them people so much that she would have signed anything they brought them. And it's not that it's not that there's any flaw in the way they draft their lease, but all the time I, I get into this title flaw and write a first refusal and I look at my seller and go, Were you aware of this? And they say, Yeah, I didn't I didn't read it. Um I just liked them. I wanted to rent to them. They sent me a lease, I signed it, sent it back. Uh probably didn't even keep a copy, but I sure didn't read any of the terms of it. And it amazes me how many people sign documents that are associated with, I mean, keep in mind the land we're selling in most cases accounts for a huge percentage of our clients' net worth. And it's, you know, it's concerning that people sign a lot of leases and documents and things without either A, they don't read them or B, they don't understand them. Absolutely is. So, in your experience, if they put that into the chain of title, if there is, you know, in the chain of title, there's a first right of refusal. So you have you have seller A, 
uh, is selling property, and he is committed out here to buyer A, that at any time I get ready to sell this, I will, I will give you the right of first refusal in the contract. And that, and that person turns it down. It says, yeah, you know, I'd like to have $250,000. And the guy says, yeah, I'm not really willing to give that. Uh, and he goes out here and finds buyer B that is willing to give it. The guy is, the person has turned down their right of first refusal. And he sells it to buyer B. Does that survive in that title? Is there still a right of first refusal that survives that passes through now when buyer B gets becomes a seller? you know, five years down the road and says, well, I'm going to sell this farm again and I want $300,000. Does he have to go back to that buyer A and, and offer that to him? Well, here's, I think the laws are different in each state. Here's what we've, here's what we've found in, in Kansas and Oklahoma. Recent, recently, we closed a transaction in, in Kansas and it was filed of record as a deed reservation. So, you know, you could, you can, you can file your lease agreement of record if it's live notarized signatures, but your deeds are, if they're of record, your deeds are filed. And in the reservation, the deed said that the grantor, which is the seller of the land, reserves a first right of refusal in the event the grantee, which is the buyer, ever decides to sell in the future. And that was literally a deed reservation. I think to make your right of first refusal more enforceable, if you study a little bit of case law on it, one of the biggest things they want you to consider is clear instructions. And the more mm-hmm. detailed instructions, the more enforceable the right of first refusal is. A lot of the ones we see are extremely vague, and they just simply say the buyer has a right of first refusal, period. On the property, them, maybe not to the seller themselves. Is that what you mean? No, no it's, it's that they have... The, the person that holds the right of first refusal, it, it'll simply say that they have a right of first refusal. And that's pretty vague, and it's probably a little tough to, to argue that or enforce it because it's hard to determine the intent. The most recent one I seen was a little bit more detailed. And it, after it said the guy had the right of first refusal, then it listed the instructions for how that was to take place. And it laid out that if the guy ever intended to sell, he had to present any written contract offer from a bona fide buyer that he was willing to accept, he had to deliver it to this guy. And the guy had 10 days to determine whether he was willing to buy the property at the exact same price and terms. Now, here's the funny thing. When the guy looked at it and he said, no, I'll go ahead and sell it. My title company said, well, that's great, but we need some documentation. Absolutely. Yeah. We need him to sign a relinquishment or something stating that he's waiving his right of first refusal because just because you was on the phone with him, we can't get that in the chain of title to underwrite this on a policy. And there's no way we're going to issue a title policy on this property until we address this issue. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. You know, you're either going to have to have a witness that uh, that feels because I'm I'm suspecting that. You know, I mean, the easy, the easy way to clear that up is the person that has the right of first refusal says yes, and I'll waive that in writing. That'll give you the document that you need. To, but if he refuses to do that, you're still going to have to prove that it was presented to him, and you, you've got to clear him mm-hmm. out of that, out of that opportunity, which may take a witness on the phone or in person out there that does a sworn affidavit 
that just says, yes, I, you know, we clearly presented this to them. I witnessed them refusing it, you know, but at some point I can, uh, I can see where that's got to be cleared. And one different, <clears throat> one thing to point out that if I'm hearing you correctly, and, and, uh, and I think I understand enough of this, that you're talking about title and actually having, you know, a clear path, clear instructions in the title, which can be, you know, in some cases in perpetuity if it's not written correctly or, I mean, it, it clouds the title. But doing this in a lease agreement makes it a little bit easier because most lease agreements tend to have an expiration date on them. Yeah. They do. So when we see, when we see that reservation or a right of first refusal in a lease agreement, um, one of the questions we have is, is there, obviously we would think that that right expires upon termination of the lease. So if you've got a lease that ends December 31st, and somewhere in that lease, it says your right of first refusal language is the tenant where the owner of the property can't sell it during the term of your lease without giving you a first right of refusal. We all assume that that right expires when the lease expires, which makes pretty good sense. I'm not an attorney, so we want to make sure nobody listening thinks we're giving legal advice. Yeah. But I had a guy ask me one time, he said, I like that first right of refusal idea in my leases if I'm the tenant. Because if farmers ever decide to sell, they'll automatically call me first, and I can normally buy the farm at a considerable discount over value for lack of any competition from any other buyers. He wanted to know if there was a way for his right of first refusal to survive the lease after expiration so that even though he was no longer the tenant, years down the road, they would still have to come back to him. And I don't, I don't know the exact answer, but I would think the only way that a tenant could do that would be to file something of record to hang up that chain of title so that it showed up as a cloud or a requirement. And then at that point, I don't know how enforceable it would be unless it was an entirely separate document, which we've seen those before, where it wasn't even a deed reservation. A guy just gave someone else a right of refusal. They weren't in the process of selling anything. The guy says, hey, I'd like a. if you ever sell, I want to know. And the, the owner says, well, if we ever decide to sell, we'll call you. And the guy says, well, sign and notarize this and filed it of record. And he showed up in the chain of title. And we had to address him on a recent closing. So when you say you had to address him, tell me, just kind of walk me through how that shook out. So we, we sold the property. Um, it was in Kansas. The title company did all the title review. They issued the preliminary commitment. And one of the requirements in the commitment comeback was there is a right of first refusal filed of record that has to be addressed. So we presented the property to the guy that had the right of first refusal. Um, he, he told us that he didn't want to buy the property, but he wouldn't sign nothing. A few days before closing, he sent a letter to the closing agent and he exercised his right of first refusal, hmm. which stalled our whole process. Yeah. Uh, the fun, the funny thing is it was on a small tract of land in the middle of a very large ranch. So we got into another conversation of how do, how do you address value? Because if, if your right of first refusal is specifically for a hundred acres 
and I'm specifically selling that hundred acres, you you don't have any argument of price and value because whatever price you've agreed to is the price. But in our situation, we were selling a thousand acres and the right of first refusal was only on a hundred acres. Mm -hmm. So the way they wanted to establish as it was take an average price per acre over the whole thousand acres, give him the opportunity to buy that hundred acres at the same price per acre, which he's willing to do. The problem is the buyer wasn't willing to buy the other 900. Yeah. He says, if I'm not, I, I don't want to lose a hundred acres out of the middle. We spent about three months working through it. We finally got it figured out. We got it closed. Everything ended up in a certain amount of negotiation and, you know, everybody got along just fine, but it, it could have went, you know, it could have went south really quick and it could have turned out a lot worse than it did. Well, that's, this is exactly the content I was hoping that we would, uh, we would be getting from you because it's, uh, it's relevant. We have a lot of non, non-urban uh, land brokers, agents, auctioneers, or even just entrepreneurs and investors that listen to this podcast show and knowing the ins and outs of, uh, of the right of first refusal is, you know, it's paramount to the equation, especially whenever it rears its ugly head, you have to deal with it. So uh, we're going to slip away. We're going to hear from our sponsors. We'll be back in a few more minutes with Shane. We'll talk, uh, we'll talk about rights of first refusal, kind of wrap that up. And then I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about some interesting stuff outside of that yeah. too. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Ever dream of owning a country estate, historic home, or lakefront property? Log on to unitedcountry.com. Would you like to retire to a home built on breathtaking acreage in the mountains? Unitedcountry.com. Ever dream of your own private hunting preserve? unitedcountry.com. Over 30,000 farm, recreational, and lifestyle properties are just a click away, helping people find their American dream for over 90 years. We will help you find yours. Log on now to unitedcountry.com and find your freedom. Thinking about selling a real estate investment, but worried about the taxes you'll have to pay? Property owners just like you have solved their tax issue with a Starker Services 1031 exchange. One call could save you a fortune in taxes. Call Starker Services today at 800-332-1031 or visit online at www.starker.com and keep the tax dollars working for you. Are you looking for heavy equipment but unsure where to start? Then you need to check out AuctionTime.com. Buying great equipment has never been easier than bidding online at AuctionTime.com. What are you waiting for? Online auctions are closing every Wednesday. So register and start bidding today. AuctionTime.com, the way to buy heavy equipment. Crude oil, natural gas, coal. Buying and selling minerals is a breeze when you have the right energy professionals on your team. Mineralmarketing.com is a leading resource for America's mineral owners. Whether you're wanting to lease or sell your mineral rights, Mineral Marketing has you covered. Mineralmarketing.com, the oil and gas marketplace. And we're back in the studio talking with Shane Terrell. Um, he's a seasoned broker out of Western Oklahoma. He does, uh, he lives part of the time. He's got a house out in Eastern Florida along the coast. And, uh, 
Shane, Don't give up my location. I won't tell them exactly. <laughs> East, triangulate. East Central Florida. That's as close as we you can know, get you. You know there's people looking for me. Yeah, I'm one of them. Uh, that way we only get you on the phone ever. <laughs> um, You're in hiding. In your experience, so you had an interesting case study. We talked a little bit about auctions and the difference in a traditional sale. And here's how I would sum it up. That ranch, um, the, the, or the 100 acres in the middle of the 1,000 acres, you said it took about three months to kind of negotiate and to wade through those waters and navigate all that and to get it closed up. You don't always have that luxury when you're selling property at auction. Yeah. So these rights of first refusal, they can be detrimental at an auction. Would you agree with that? I would agree, and I think... I think when we start talking about that, we're probably going to create more questions and answers. But I've got um, it, it's good to provoke some thought because I don't I don't know the actual legalities of how how you handle that. I think a lot of it depends on the specific terminology in the way the right of first refusal was drafted. Mm-hmm. And if it's drafted very specifically with some pretty simple instructions that are reasonable, I think it's extremely enforceable. And I think one of the ways that that landowners can get out of honoring these right of first refusals is if they're drafted vaguely or maybe improper to whatever the statute is in the state that's going to regulate them, or it's tough to determine the exact intent. So let's talk about auction. You know, I heard it's funny when time. it's funny when you say that. I asked an attorney one time about. I remember that I'm not going to mention the attorney's name in Enid, but we are talking about life estates, mm-hmm. and and it was a problem. And I asked this attorney. I said, "How do you feel about life estates?" You know, in this case, and he goes, "Well, I feel great about them if they're poorly written." <laughs> he said, "Because I can I can make that go away." He said, "But to your point, is if it's very specific and written written well." Oh, that was a tongue twister. Written well. If it's written well, <laughs> if it's written well, then it becomes more of a problem. So go ahead. We should, you might write this down. We should have a conversation in in another podcast about the effect of life estates mm-hmm. um, and how they're terminated and the the remaindermen and the and the corpus core of the asset. There's some things associated with life estates and oil and gas minerals and production revenue and lease bonus and delay royalties, that that money doesn't shake out the way you would think. So we should talk about life estates in the future. But for now, auctions, uh, the difference in addressing a right of first refusal at auction as opposed to a conventional private sale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I kind of like, I kind of like, I kind of like addressing it at auction. I don't know hundred percent the legalities of this. And I think it depends on how the, how it was actually drafted in the right of first refusal. But we heard a story years ago about a gentleman in Oklahoma that wanted to sell his farm. And there was another gentleman that had a first right of refusal as a deed reservation. And the deed basically said, if I ever sell this, I got to give this guy a first right of refusal. Mm -hmm. So the auction, the auctioneer takes this farm to auction and when he gets all the way to the high bid and everybody's done, instead of saying sold to the high bidder, he said, we're going to rest the bid right there. He looks at the gentleman that holds the right of first refusal and he says, you know, the terms, the contract's been laid out in front of everybody in the room. So the terms are what they are. The only thing we need is the price in the buyer's name. There's your price. Are you a buyer today? 
Mm-hmm. And the guy with the right of first refusal says, yes, I believe I am. I'll just buy the property. And the auctioneer turns back to the guy that had the previous high bid. And he said, would you like to bid again? Hmm. And I always thought that was an intriguing story because in a private conventional transaction, you've literally already got your contract signed by your third party buyer. And then you're required to present that exact contract to the holder of the right of first refusal and say, third party bona fide buyer, I'm willing to accept this. Do you want the same price in terms or can I go ahead and sell it to this other guy? I think the cool thing at auction is you may have the ability to just put that right of first refusal holder in a position as another bidder like mm-hmm. anybody at the auction with one exception. The exception being that your high bidder may get to bid against himself multiple times and your right of first refusal guy will never have to bid. All he'll have to do is accept someone else's high bid. So I'd, I'd like to study the legalities of that, Sean. Yeah, I think he's, he's basically in that scenario. Every time the high bidder arrives at a price, the right of first refusal is taking him out of his position, but you're allowing him to increase his own bid. And incrementally, I'm trying to think through that in my mind, You, you I don't know that you could really open that back up to a live auction between the two, but you would literally just go back to that high bidder and say, do you want to increase it again? And the right of first refusal says, yes, I'll take it at that price. Well, do you want to increase your bid again? And, and they're just it, yeah. walking it up. So you have two bidders without actually you know, Having calling an auction. Yeah. It's, it's not competitive bid. It's, it's high bid, and it gets replaced, but the guy can raise his high bid. I would suspect if we told that scenario to 10 different attorneys, yeah. we would probably get multiple answers, which I like. I like the, I like the vagueness of it because if it's arguable – I think here's the here's the ammunition the attorney has, depending on depending on the way the right of first refusal is drafted and depending on which state and what the statutes are. I think at a at a public auction with reserve, not at a not in an absolute auction, but at a public auction with reserve. I think the argument is the seller has not agreed to any specific price. They haven't signed any contracts because, you know, a lot of our auctions, Sean, we let the seller decide if they're a seller after the auction's over. We'll get to the high bid. We'll eliminate a large percentage of the risk. Once we close out the auction, we'll get signatures from the high bidder. We'll get earnest money. We will deliver those contracts to the seller and say, are you a seller or do you want to reject the high bids? And we almost always give our sellers that level of safety. The argument on my side would be they haven't agreed to sell to anybody until they sign that contract. And I think the public display of that right of first refusal, if he denied that bid and we completed a contract at a higher price with somebody else, I think that could be documented and maybe arguable. I don't know that it's ever been te- I don't know that it's ever been tested though. Hmm. You're listening to the Sale Ring Podcast, taking real estate and auction to the next level. I agree with that 100%. Let's talk a little bit about the marketability of the property. Mm -hmm. So how does that affect marketability when you have a right of first refusal? And 
I don't know, you can use a scenario, maybe a case study or even a hypothetical, but just in your experience, you have a base price, you have a per acre price or a, a fixed price that you would list property for. However, it's it's got some hair on it. You know, it's got an issue with it. So what's does that distract from the price? Does it add to the price? Or I can't imagine it would add to the price. But I think, um, you know, in the auction scenario, I think there's there's a, there's some circumstances that, that you'll know what I'm talking about. The certain guy that has that right of first refusal, everybody at the auction knows it, depending on what level they want to compete with him. It, it literally may add value in an auction setting. But in a private negotiated sale, the, the right of first refusal absolutely hurts the marketability of the property. You put yourself in the buyer's position, and it's easy to see why. If I'm a buyer and I want to buy your property and I'm willing to make an offer to buy it, and then I find out that my offer is going to be shopped to this guy with the right of first refusal, I'm reluctant to establish his price, knowing that I'm setting his market and maybe not getting to purchase a property. So I I put myself in a conflict to where as a buyer, I want to buy property as cheap as I possibly can. And now I've, I've got competition out there and I've got to start thinking what what he's willing to give. And most of the time, buyers just don't want to make offers on property if they know there's a right of first refusal out there. I can see their reluctance, too. Yeah. There's something I studied a little bit of. Uh, one of them we were in a scenario with, the buyer literally calls me and he goes, hey, why don't we just make my offer? something that nobody else would agree to. And I said, that's a great idea. Why don't you give twice what the property's worth? (laughs) And he laughed and he said, no, I didn't mean like that. He said, the price is the price. He said, I'm talking about the terms. So we start, he starts throwing all these scenarios around. What if I agreed in the contract that I was going to do all these things that no other reasonable buyer would do, but then I've got to, you know, I'm not going to honor those. And I thought, interesting. And you think about it, it's a pretty interesting statement. So yeah. I started I started studying the law in my in my book at Google. That's my law book, Google. Book so Google. Uh, so uh, there's actually some language out there in some state statutes that you can't circumvent a right of first refusal with with some crazy ideas like that. You know, where um, say you want to you want to you want to make sure you get the property bought so in the terms of the contract you come up with all these scenarios where say you're going to you're going to let the you're going to let the seller hunt the property for the rest of his life or you're going to let his whole family and kids fish in the ponds or you're going to let his oh, we just live we just ran across you know, we yeah. just ran across one of those um, with that, uh, with the oil and gas, uh, those farms are sold for the energy company in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. One of the exactly. farms we were looking at had a uh, had a, a lifetime hunting and fishing um, permit or something. Yeah. yeah, allowance on it. Yeah. So what do we? So what do we do with that farm? Uh, we didn't sell it. We, yeah. Exactly. We didn't even we did we removed it from the auction because of the lack of marketability because of that language. Yeah. So I had a. Uh, I had a ranch up in uh, northwest Kansas one time we were selling, large ranch. There was 100 and maybe 150, 160 acre tract in the middle of it. 
And the deed on that, when the guy received it, there was a reservation where the, the guy that deeded it to him got lifetime hunting rights. And we got all the way down to closing. It showed up in the commitment as a requirement. The buyer says, you got to get rid of that. You know, well, you need to find this guy. He needs to sign a waiver. He needs to give up that right mm -hmm. because I don't want, I don't want a guy having a right to hunt 160 acres in the middle of this huge ranch for the rest of his life. Yeah. And so I called the, it happened to be our, our seller's brother. And he calls, he says, yeah, you know, I talked to my brother. He's not, he's not going to give up that right. Mm. But the wife called the next, the wife called the next day and she says, what do we got to do to get rid of this? And I said, well, there's two ways to fix it. I said, he can either, he can either sign a waiver, giving up his right for these hunting rights. And if you notice in the deed, it's for his lifetime. Mm -hmm. So it's only good as long as he's alive. So I said, I either need him to give up that right or you need to bring me a death certificate for him. <laughs> she, she says, she says, I'm following you. The next day, the guy that on the ranch called me back. He goes, uh, what'd you say to my wife yesterday? And I said, I don't know why. And he said, she just threatened to kill my brother. He'll be signing that waiver. <laughs> that's not, that's, that's that, uh, would solve the problem, but that's, yeah. so if you're listening, uh, that, that may not be the right approach. That's just an approach. It works we're, in that We're case. talking about. We're talking, We're talking about talking hypotheticals. About how, to, how to cure title. <laughs> how to cure title. <laughs> Thing you need to know about my brother Shane, he drinks a lot, so. Yeah. yeah. So, I don't, you know, they, they probably don't have that in the title examination standards in most states, but uh, a death certificate fix a lot of requirements. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he either needs to agree to leave the property or you need to bring me a death certificate. Unless he puts it in a trust or something crazy after that point, yeah. That would probably solve it. Was it. A very, it was a very professional conversation. I think it <laughs> started funny. with, is there any... Is there any other way to cure this defect? And I said, yeah, death certificate. And I kind of left it at that. <laughs> but I don't want to know anything about it. Oh, that's funny. You know, I was thinking the other day about, um, we, we talk a lot about, we had an interesting upbringing in <laughs> yeah. western Oklahoma. Um, we, grew up, we grew up poor. You should mention that. We grew up poor in western Oklahoma. Grew up poor. A lot of people say sharecropping. We we weren't sharecropping. We were we were coming in after harvesting those crops. So we, <laughs> you were scavenging. We basically you were share yeah, scavenging. <laughs> we were uh, we were nomads. We were gypsies with combines with you, machines. Do you remember? Do you remember the first time we explained to somebody what it is, how we grew up, and they said you were a gypsy, and That's and we're like, no, okay, I didn't realize that. And you think about it, we. Yeah. Literally started on the Texas Oklahoma border, and we followed the harvest all the way to the Canadian border. Mm -hmm. We was gone. We was gone every summer from the first of May to the middle of September. We was from the time we were born until we graduated school. We were always two weeks late for school. That explains a lot, right there. You were always two weeks late for school. <laughs> yes. Yes. What's even worse <laughs> is the school didn't seem to mind. They were like, they were like the Terrells aren't here. Yeah, that'll be okay. Oh. You know, they could be two months late if yeah. they want. We're cool. <laughs> well, yeah, just get them out of here. <laughs> I, was, I was a horrible student. I, I was not a good student. And uh, 
Shane was a better student, um, you know, grade-wise, you were a better student. But I don't know how <laughs> do you, you did that. Well, we spent. Hey, do you, I don't do understand. Grade, we spent the same amount. Wise? Well, we spent the same amount of time in the principal's office, but you made better grades than I did. I, I don't understand how that's possible. I run into Max Lancaster, our superintendent, the other day in the John Deere dealership. <laughs> You're gonna love this story. So I run into Max Lancaster, who I love, was our superintendent when we were kids. And I'm visiting with him in the John Deere store. And one of the guys that works there says, Max, I didn't know that you knew Shane. And Max says, are you kidding? Shane and I shared an office together for five years. <laughs> for five years. That, that is fairly accurate. I want to make accurate. note that you said for five years, not for four years. Yeah. Yep. Well, now our high school, <laughs> in, in our high school, seventh through 12th grade, uh, was all gotcha. in the same building. Yeah, gotcha. so it was actually it would have been six years. He retired before our senior year, but you know, people like that is uh, we got to feel pretty fortunate, dude. We joke about you know growing up poor. You know, we weren't poor. We had everything we needed. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the influence from the people around us like that, and all the other uh, influence from that small farm and ranch community, uh, there's so much more valuable than than most people have. You know, throw the finances out the window, but that kind of influence and structure and discipline, it's its something we should be extremely thankful for. I, I, I was thinking the other day about, um, so custom harvesting is an interesting, you yeah. know, business. Yes. You, you start, like Shane said, down on the Texas line. We go to North Dakota every year. We just state by state cutting wheat because wheat ripens from the south to the north mm-hmm. and, uh, it takes a whole summer you know you start out in may and by uh september you're wrapping up in north dakota and you load everything up and you head back home but we lived in trailer houses mm-hmm. so we pulled trailers um with us and it, i guess it is a lot like a gypsy Shane, i got to thinking about and don't mention the guy's name if you can even remember it but one of the hired hands that worked for our our dad at the time we were staying in the bunkhouse with him and this guy was he was, he was an odd duck anyways. I think we were in Gordon, Nebraska, and he had went to the store over behind the trailer park and had stole a pair of sunglasses out of the store. Do you, you remember the story I'm talking about? I do. He made the mistake of telling us he stole them. He did. We were probably eight, we were probably eight or nine years old at the time. <laughs> he was bragging to us that he stole these sunglasses. So, uh, and we were just kids, we were young, but we were smart enough to know that, okay, he was both proud and nervous about it at the same time. So as geniuses, we said, we called the cops. We've turned, (laughs) we've turned you in for it. You remember what happened next, right after we told him that? Yes. Every day at noon, all of those small farm and ranch communities that I've ever been in back in the, you know, eighties and nineties. At noon, there's a big whistle goes off all across town every day at noon. It's the noon whistle. Mm-hmm. Lunchtime, yeah. yeah. So it, We yeah, had so just right told about, him that we turned him in to the cops. We called oh, the cops and the on whistle him. goes was, off. That's awesome. Yep, and we started hollering, they're coming, you better get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> this guy starts bouncing off the walls of the trailer, freaking out. He's starting to pack his bags. He's trying to figure out where he's going to escape to all over a pair of sunglasses. Gosh, poor guy. Yeah. 
Poor guy. <clears throat> Those were good you times. You shouldn't steal. No. We were raised to believe that you shouldn't steal. We taught him a valuable lesson that day. Yeah. I don't know if he'll listen to this podcast or not. You know who you are, brother. <laughs> you know you, who so, you are. We know you're out there. <laughs> I'm glad that Shane and I could uh, put you back on, on the right track. On the right side of the law. I bet he never stole another pair of sunglasses <laughs> again. You know, I would be surprised if he didn't at least think twice before he did yeah. it. Because yeah. that, uh, that noon whistle's wow. going off tomorrow, too. <laughs> It's, a, const- it's a constant 12 o'clock <laughs> reminder. Don't steal sunglasses. <laughs> nice. Oh, man. You know, one, one thing we should, our, our whole topic was about right of first refusal. Mm-hmm. We didn't mention the difference between, you know, sometimes you see the terminology options. Um, sometimes people have an option to purchase. Mm-hmm. And I've seen language in leases as well as deed reservations where instead of using the right of first refusal terminology, they will use the word options, that the person has an option to purchase. And I believe there's a large difference in the in the laws and statutes depending on options and right of first refusals. In a lot of states, I'm told that um, consideration has to be given for an option. So if the when my attorney tells me if you give somebody an option to purchase something, if they haven't paid any consideration at all, that the option's not valid. So, uh, you know, terminology is probably going to be an issue and whether or not an option's enforceable. It makes perfect sense. And we do see, you know, we can have, um, I think that's a strategy that people use, an investment strategy from taking options on property. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I actually feel like that may be a topic that we could, uh, we can have, also the topic we wrote down earlier uh, about life estates yeah if you're up for chain we're going to have you back on the show and we're going to talk about life estates and we can talk about options that uh that may be a a a beneficial time to talk about both yeah you know whether you have a life estate or you have an option conversation too so they can tell us the the real legalities you know we uh we've got uh, mike brandley i'll bet we could get mike in on the call and and we could we could hash all that out that would be fun i think uh i'd like to be on a call with mike if there's room for for that much man i don't know is there room for that many uh that much intellect too many personalities i don't know because you think about it mike 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 and i have uh pretty pretty strong opinions about everything i enjoy visiting with mike because we don't agree on anything and i kind of i think he enjoys the battle and the debate as much as i do but uh i think our first i think you opened this show with um right of first refusal shane uh good or bad Mm -hmm. so um maybe maybe we finish with this i think right of first refusals are good for the savvy buyers investors and tenants I think most of the time they're bad for the landowner. I think they're bad. If a right of first refusal shows up in your chain of title, most of the time it's going to cause you some problems. And some money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we agree. We agree. That's a great summation of today's show. We, uh, we appreciate you being on. Why don't you tell everybody before you hop off, tell them where they can, if they want to visit with you a little bit, where they may reach you. You don't have to give them your physical we, location since you're thought, on the lamb right we, now. <laughs> I thought we agreed you weren't going to out me on my location. Um, now they can they can find me. Uh, well, they can call you. My they big can brother, find me in you, North America. You, you usually know where I'm at, so they could just call Sean 
or, uh, you know, most of the information on what we're doing can be found in one of two places, either at our only guest marketing company, which can be found at mineralmarketing.com or on the real estate side at huntingcountryrealestate.com. Awesome. Very good. Well, we appreciate you being on the show today, man. This is uh, extremely beneficial, and uh, we'll look forward to doing another show in the future. Oh, thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate the invite. Trina, Sean, you all have a wonderful day. All right. You See you, Shane. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's show. To access all resources and links mentioned in today's show, head over to www.thesalering.com now. We appreciate your feedback and encourage you to share the show with other industry pros like yourself. Join us next time as we meet you inside The Sale Ring.